If we turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 7, thank you Josh, praise team, praise band for leading us in worship. For those of you that were here last evening, or last Sunday evening, I shared that I would be doing a series that will take us up to Advent season, since I'm spot preaching at this point uh, with Brother Al. And we're going to be completing our series next Sunday morning on the Christological passages. And so uh, until December, I'm going to be taking various Old Testament texts, uh, popular texts, texts that we're very familiar with and showing uh, how these texts relate to the grand story of redemption that is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll notice, I skipped to Genesis and got straight to Exodus, but that's because I'll be beginning Genesis in January. So be of good cheer. I believe that Genesis belongs in the canon. And, and so we'll be there soon enough. When you think about the word jealousy, you, you tend to think, at least I do, about a powerful human emotion where, if left unchecked, can cause a great deal of damage and heartache. You've probably experienced that or been the culprit behind that at times. Indeed, the first time we encounter the word jealousy in Scripture, it is a sinful human uh, jealousy. In Genesis 30, verse 1, the first time we see this, Rachel is jealous of her sister Leah. It created chaos in the family, as you know. And then later in Genesis 37, verse 11, the sons of Jacob are jealous of Joseph. And again, utter dysfunction in that family as a result. Well, with that, it may shock you to hear that Scripture affirms God's jealousy. The first time we explicitly see that is in Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And in the giving of the law, the Lord says, You shall not bow down to them, that is the idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then numerous times in the Old Testament, you see this notion of the jealousy of God. And even in the New Testament, God's jealousy is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10. And James chapter 4, with regard to reference uh, our idols and our spiritual adultery. So it may not be an overstatement to say with Robert Jensen, the scholar, in the scriptures, it is first among the Lord's attributes that he is a jealous God. The Lord even says in Exodus 34, 14... My name is Jealous. Of course, we learned last week that his name is the Lord. So his covenantal name is synonymous with Jealous. So obviously, whatever Jealousy means, it cannot refer to anything sinful in God. We saw last week uh, that he is holy. We sang about that tonight. He is holy, and he is never jealous because he's needy or he's greedy, or he's lazy, or he's petty, or because he's discontented with his position in the universe. 
So what is the jealousy of God? Well, Kirk Wellam, uh, who is a pastor and the brother of one of my former colleagues, Steve Wellam, says that the jealousy of God is his holy commitment to his honor, glory, and love that manifests itself in the salvation of his people and the just condemnation of all who stand in opposition to him. And so today, tonight, we're going to see that because God is jealous, he protects and he safeguards that which is most precious to him. That is his name, his reputation, and his covenant people. Isn't that a good word for us? In 2016, I went to Athens, Greece on a mission trip, and I was able to go to the Areopagus, uh, which is a very scenic view of, has this scenic view of, of Athens. And down there, um, in the foot of the Areopagus, which is a hill, is the Agoras, where it was the marketplace. In fact, uh, Paul was there. And in Acts 17, in that marketplace, the Agora, it says he was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And so he began to preach. And some of the philosophers began to hear what he was saying. And some said, he's a babbler. But others were kind of captivated by what he was saying. And so they wanted to debate with him. And so they invited him up to the Areopagus, which was where they would have their debates. And so he, there at the Areopagus, he takes on the idols of the culture. And so what Paul does there, images, what God himself always does. Because of divine jealousy, and this is a word to us individually, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a word to us corporately. He always takes on our idols. What we'll see today is that because God's name is jealous, God in the ten plagues, and we're going to look at all ten and we'll be, back, we'll be out on time. We're going to do this um, very efficiently. Um, as he takes on these idols, or, these, or as he pours out these plagues, he's actually striking against not only the Egyptians, but against their gods. Now, I want to say that. Well, several texts could tell us that, but listen to this from Exodus 12, 12. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So that's what he's doing in these plagues. James Montgomery Boyce says this, in order to understand these plagues, we need to understand they were directed against the gods and the goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel. There were about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered around about the three great natural forces of Egyptian life. The Nile the land, and the sky. And so last week we saw Moses was commissioned to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And he goes. And when he comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh asks this monumental question, who is the Lord? And now the Lord is about to answer that question with these 10 plagues. The first plague we see 
in verses 14 to 16 of um, Exodus 7. The first plague is he turns the water to blood. Now look with me, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned it into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go. That Notice, that they may serve me. Or maybe your translation reads, Worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. And so the reason for this demand is clear. So that my people might be set free to worship the true and living God. And the reason Pharaoh's heart was hardened is that it belonged to the false gods. Why do I say that? Well, that's why Moses is going to the Nile. Pharaoh going to the Nile, uh, where he would meet Moses, had a ritual purpose. Uh, It was related in some way uh, to Egypt's two great sustainers of life, which was the Nile River and the sun. And in line with God's purpose to restore worship, um, which is the purpose of the plagues themselves, notice in verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Remember last week, this is my name forever. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations and throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You see, God do these marvelous works to demonstrate that he is the Lord. This is no exception. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And so throughout redemptive history, God does these marvelous works to demonstrate his lordship. He continues to do that, but he also does it by his acts of judgment. Now, to understand how devastating this particular plague would have been, the Nile was the lifeblood of the nation. It was used virtually for everything, and without the Nile, the land would have been nothing but a desert. And there were at least three Egyptian gods that were associated with the Nile. The most important of these was the god Hapi, who was the god of the flood. The idea was that the the annual flooding of the Nile gave birth to Egypt. That was the idea and nursed its strength. And so the Nile was worshipped and the god of the Nile was worshipped. And with one blow, God gave them a water and a food shortage. 
a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis. It's horrifying what God does to the idols. We need to think about that not only as individuals, but as a church and as an American citizen. And yet, in verses 22 to 25, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, When we're exposed to the revelation of God and we don't respond in repentance and faith, our hearts don't remain the same. They're not static. They become hardened. And so a week passes, and that brings us to the second plague, uh, the frogs in chapter 8. So we're not going to look at every verse. We're just looking at these directed passages. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and all your people and all your servants And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Again, the Lord had a reason for the plagues, his lordship over their gods. Hequet was the frog goddess. And Hequet, the frog goddess, was relied upon by Egyptians to control the frog population by protecting the crocodiles, which was their natural predator. And so if Egypt is overcome with frogs, their goddess is shamed. And that's exactly what's happening. And in verses 7 to 15... Pharaoh appeals to Moses to ask the Lord to take away the frogs. But it was a cry for relief, not for redemption. Remember, there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow, which is you're just fixated on the consequences, the immediate consequences generally, It leads to judgment. And we know this because this time it tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now the question is, what offended him? Here's what offended him. That God had a claim on him. If you go on the Auburn campus or any other campus for that matter, and you share the gospel with an unbeliever, and they get irate. The reason they're irate is because they do not want the Lord to have a claim on their moral life. That's where Pharaoh is here. That brings us to the third plague, the gnats. By the way, there's no gnats in Auburn, I've noticed. Praise God. Where I grew up, Enterprise, there's a bunch of them. Uh, That brings us to chapter 8, verses 16 to 17, the third plague. Plague being the gnats. Look look with me in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth 
so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats, oh man, and beast. All the dust of the earth, supernatural. The dust became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Again, the Lord had a reason for the plague, his lordship over the gods. Um, this idol that God is taking on is the earth god, Geb. Um, and, and it's very likely that's the case because, again, he turns the earth into gnats. He was challenging their trust in the soil and their trust in the God of the ground. Again, verses 18 to 20 tell us Pharaoh's heart was hardened. His heart was hardened despite the fact that his ma magicians this time attributed these plagues to the Lord. Again, when you don't respond to the revelation of God, you will not stay the same. Your heart is progressively hardened. That brings us to the fourth plague, the flies. Look with me in chapter 8, verses 21 to 24. And he says, If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, note this, I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where the Israelites resided. Where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Notice how often we read that. That you may know that I am the Lord. He revealed his name as Lord in chapter 3. The rest of the Bible is about demonstrating what it means he's the Lord. We could even say the rest of human history is about that. That you may know. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies, even in the house of Pharaoh. Not even the king was immune. And into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Psalm 78 verse 45 tells us these flies bite. They were, they were biting people. Here for the first time, so you see this distinction is made between the effects on the Egyptians and the effects on the people of God. Israel is protected from the plague. Again, at this point, we don't really know what idol is targeted here, but most scholars believe it may have been Beelzebub, who is the lord of the flies. And there is evidence that the Egyptians, there were certain Egyptians that worshipped Beelzebub, the protector and guardian uh, from the flies. And, and, and Pharaoh, at this point, didn't care for this plague anymore, but he hardens his heart. Verses 25 to 32. He hates this plague as much as he hates any. 
That brings us to the fifth plague. Uh, The Egyptian livestock die. Chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. Amen. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. People's unbelief is never due to lack of evidence. I want you to know that. It's never due to lack of evidence. It's because we do not want the Lord God to stand over us as sovereign over our lives. That's exactly where Pharaoh is here. Now, this would have had disastrous consequences, economic consequences, again, for Egypt. It would have affected their transportation, their labor, and their milk, and their worship. Many of the Egyptian gods were depicted as livestock. And then there was the goddesses. Isis, for instance, was the queen of the goddesses, and she was depicted with cow horns on her head. You know, it's interesting that when Israel makes idols in Exodus 32, uh, the Lord calls them stiff-necked people. They've become like their idols. They had borrowed the idols from Egypt, and one of these idols that they worshipped was these, the, the idols of the livestock. And so, even here, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. That brings us to the sixth plague, the boils. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It should become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air It became boils breaking out in sores on man and on beast. Now, Moses throwing uh, soot in the air is not an incidental detail. He was doing what the Egyptian priest often did. It, It was normal for them to take their sacrificial ashes and cast them in the air as a sign of blessing. But God took that act designed as a blessing for Egypt and he reverses it on them. And so the Egyptians were very aware of infectious diseases and and sores. The most common God for dealing with disease in Egypt was Sekhmeth, who was a a lion-headed goddess. Again, these, these plagues are going after their gods. And for the first time, In verse 12, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
Up to now, it just said that Pharaoh's heart was hardened or Pharaoh himself hardened his own heart. What does that mean, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, he didn't take a man that was naturally uh, a person who sang, How Great Thou Art. What he did was, he said, okay, you want to rebel against me? I'm just going to give you over to your sin. That's Romans 1. That's what it means when it says that God hardened his heart. He was just giving a man over to his wicked impulses. Well, that brings us to the seventh plague, the hellstorm. Notice in verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, and, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. He's reminding Pharaoh of his forbearance. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And so notice in verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt. Incidentally, when I preached through Exodus at my church in Louisville, I would, before the Lord, I'm preaching on this plague and hail begins to hit the windows of our church. You could say that would have strengthened my faith. Actually, I wanted to climb under a chair, but it happened. The hell struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hell struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hell. So this puts Pharaoh's servants in a very awkward spot. They could trust in Shu, who is the god of atmosphere, or Newt who is the sky goddess. But some, verse 20, started to doubt at this point the efficacy, the effectiveness of Egypt's gods. It took that much. And yet, verse 34 tells us in the passage, guess what? Pharaoh hardened his heart. That brings us to the eighth plague, the, the locusts. We're getting there, so bear with me. Notice in chapter 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. And again, hardening his heart here is not God taking a, an ordinarily godly man and reversing his godly 
tendencies. He's giving a man over. It is a dangerous place to be when God gives a person over to their sin. And their, their, their consciences are seared. It's a dangerous place to be. But if you continue to disobey God, if you continue in high-handed sins, sins of malice, where you are presuming upon his forbearance, you are presuming upon his grace and his mercy, this is exactly what he might do. For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have uh, dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So this is one of the great mysteries. Pharaoh hardened his heart God hardened his heart and the heart of the servants. And the second part of verse 1 and verse 2 tells us why he did that. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly. That you may know that I am the Lord. Now notice in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts. So that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land. In all that the hell has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locust. The locust came up all over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts has had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hell had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Again, he's humiliating the gods. The the Egyptians worshipped Mean, who was the patron of the crops. They also worshipped, among other gods, Sinahim, who was the divine protector against pests. And once again, he, he calls Minister Moses, and he admits the error of his ways, but still there's no true repentance. There is a world of difference between contrition, which is godly sorrow, and attrition, which is worldly sorrow. And so again, chapter 10, verse 20, the Lord hardened his heart. That brings us to the ninth plague. The ninth plague, which is darkness over the land. Look with me in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, here he brings about complete darkness. This would have been especially terrifying to the Egyptians. Why? Because they worshiped the sun. The sun was one of their supreme gods. Uh, Their supreme deity was Amon Re, who was the solar deity. In fact, he was deemed their creator. And now their God has not shown up. He hasn't 
arise to the occasion. And Pharaoh himself was not only a sun worshiper, he was regarded as the son of Ray, the son of the sun. And so after nine plagues, it's clear that the Lord is put a whoop, putting a whooping on the Egyptian gods with their biggest deity defeated last. And again, Pharaoh refuses to give up self-sovereignty. You're going to meet people like this in this city, in this community. They could see the power of God at work in the world, and they could see the power of God at work in their families. But they love their sin too much. They love self-sovereignty, which is an illusion. He wanted to deal with the Lord on his terms. That was his problem. He wanted God on his terms, not the Lord's terms. And so the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10, verse 27. Now, even though there's nine plagues that have fallen, it appears from outward appearances that the, the plagues have failed. Why do I say that? Because Israel still isn't delivered. It appears that Egypt has taken a whipping, but Israel still has not been delivered. That brings us to the 10th plague. As we come to our end of our time, chapter 11, the death of the firstborn son or the death of a substitutionary lamb. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague, more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the land, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of his people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn even of the cattle. And so Pharaoh was considered a deity. So this last plague is directed at him. So in the ninth plague, his father, the sun god, was defeated. And now his own son will be defeated. And the death of the firstborn reveals God's jealousy for his people. All the way back in chapter 4, Pharaoh is told, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse, I will kill your firstborn son. But God's jealousy also means his absolute refusal to share his glory with another God. We need to remember that. He absolutely, comprehensively refuses to share his glory with another God. Even the functional idols that we struggle with each day. And in this case, the God of death, who was Osiris, the God of death. His name meant, it meant mighty one. Now, the death of the firstborn son was especially important here because Pharaoh's son was the heir apparent. He would become the son of Re and the son of Osiris upon Pharaoh's death. But God 
who is jealous for his name and his people, gives instructions to Moses that's going to exempt them from this ultimate judgment. Notice with me in chapter 12, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the day of this month, every... Um, on this day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Verse 13, the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, the Lord could have redeemed Israel just by striking the firstborn of Egypt. Um, the Passover, though, reminds us that Israel deserved the same judgment as Egypt. All right? That's important for us to remember. In fact, in every home that night, the death count would be the same. The next morning, there would be a corpse in every home. The question is, will it be a lamb or a firstborn son? In other words, Israel was sinful just like Egypt was sinful. The difference is, one would receive the judgment, the other would receive the judgment through a substitute. You think the Lord is teaching us something here. And then verse 29, it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house, notice, where someone was not dead. That includes Israel. There was judgment in every house. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said. Redemption. But the sacrifice of a lamb signals that there is unfinished work, as we saw this morning. In Israel, the, the, the priest always stood as they offered sacrifices because those sacrifices, those lambs, were not sufficient. After all, there is no lamb that is a legitimate exchange for a human life. But about a thousand years later, John the Baptist beheld his cousin, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, I want you to see this as we close. When Jesus the Lamb was on the cross, what does it say 
in Luke 23, 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. There were three days of darkness during the plagues. There's three hours of darkness on the land. What is that depicting? The plagues are falling, but it's falling on one person. And then he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. He died. You know, it's interesting, in Amos chapter 8, listen to these words. He's speaking about the day of the great exodus, the one in which the first exodus pointed to. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. That's Amos chapter 8. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun. Do you see the point? In the gospel, we have the death of the firstborn son and the death of the lamb in one person, Jesus Christ. And it is through the judgment that falls on him that God's people experience the great and better exodus that the exodus in the book of Exodus can only typify. In other words, the greatest expression of God's jealousy will come at the cost of God himself who in his son sacrifices both the Passover lamb and the firstborn son in one person. And in so doing, he delivers us from the power of darkness, transfers us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Closing response, just in, in one minute, I'll give it. Because God is jealous, no believer should fret with what's going on in the world. We can grieve, we can pray, but there's no need to fret because our God is a jealous God. Second, because God is jealous, every believer should flee from that which provokes his jealousy. Let me just tell you something. He's undefeated when it comes to the idols. Third, because God is jealous, we should be unswervingly committed to that which he, he is committed to. And ultimately, what is that? The glory of his son. And so when you go about your week and you're in the workplace, you're in the marketplace, remind yourselves you are a missionary, having been redeemed by the blood of the son. And now you're there to, as the jealous one. You're there as, as one jealous for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And then finally, because God is jealous, the unbeliever should run to the only place where judgment on sin and salvation from sin meet. And that is the firstborn son, the Lamb of God. We're going to come, uh, Josh is going to come with his, uh, the worship team, and we're going to give you an opportunity uh, to, to um, respond to the call that God gives us by his word. A call to repent of your idols. Because you see what's going to happen to the idols ultimately. Even if you haven't experienced the judgment on your idols yet, don't confuse God's forbearance with indifference. God is bringing judgment on the idols. But the good news is he's already brought judgment on the idols in the substitute. If you repent of your sins and trust in that substitute, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you'll be delivered. Your sins will be forgiven. Let's stand and sing.